Judges chapter 8 is our text. If you want to open your Bible there or navigate on your silenced device. I heard a couple of things ringing a little while ago. Don't think I won't make fun of you. I will. But we're in Judges chapter 8. We're looking at verses 22 through 35. The topic, Gideon refuses to be made king, but from the moment he accepts plundered earrings from the men of Israel as tribute, he begins to act as their king. Title of our message, The Lord of the Earrings, The Resemblance of a King. (laughs) I crack myself up. Anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this gathering of saints. I assume, Lord, that there's perhaps one or two or maybe several individuals that don't know you as their Savior. All of us, Lord, right now pray collectively that they would be ministered to by the Spirit, that you would free their will to make a decision to trust Christ today. As for us, Lord, we want to hear from you in that still small way that you talk in our hearts, dividing between the soul and the Spirit, using your living word to show us the living Savior. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. If you're culturally savvy, and I say, who's on first, you'll most likely respond by saying, yes, or that's right. It goes back to the classic comedy sketch first performed by Abbott and Costello in the late 1930s. Lou Costello wanted to know the names of the players on the baseball team, but Abbott told him who was on first. What was on second, and I don't know, was on third. The rest of the players were Y in left field, because in center field, tomorrow was the pitcher, today was the catcher, and I don't care was at shortstop. The right fielder is never named, but over time he's come to be called nobody. It's a tremendously funny sketch that never ceases to make you crack up. The comic timing is amazing. Now, if I reword the question and ask who's first, and you're a Christian, you'd most likely answer Jesus. Having said that, I think we'd admit Jesus is not always first in our actual day-to-day living. It's a biblical fact that we still contend with the flesh and that we too often yield to our flesh rather than to the Spirit of God. As we close the book on Gideon, he provides the extreme example of a believer confessing God as first but making choices that totally contradict his confession. Hopefully none of us is as extreme a case as was Gideon, but each one of us will benefit by taking a look at our day-to-day choices. I'll organize my thoughts around the following two questions. Number one, do you confess that Jesus is first? And number two, do you choose as if Jesus is first? Let's take a look at our confession first in verses 22 and 23. Here are three quick thoughts about Jesus being first. Number one, he is first in that he created all things. In Colossians 1.15, we are told that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, that doesn't mean he himself is a created being. It means that he created all things, and that's proven from the two verses that follow. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. And so Jesus is first by virtue of being God and our creator. Number two, in the very next verse, Colossians 1.18, he is called the firstborn from the dead. 
Jesus was the first person to come back from the dead, never to die again. He is therefore preeminent over death and uh, hell itself. In fact, he says he has the keys or the authority over death and hell. Third, Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. His resurrection from the dead is the guarantee of the resurrection from the dead or the rapture of all you church age saints. Now, even when the words firstborn or first fruits or first are not used, it's easy to see that Jesus is preeminent. He said of himself in the book of Hebrews, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. And that's a quote from the Old Testament. It's from Psalms 40, verse 7. And it gives rise to the much repeated statement that Jesus can be found on every page of the Bible. He's first whether you acknowledge it or not. There's coming a time when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, believer and unbeliever alike. Gideon is going to make a strong confession that the Lord is first in his life and in the life of the nation. It comes right in the aftermath of their victory over the mighty Midianites. And so we're picking up the story, and we're in verse 22 where it says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. The men of Israel were asking Gideon to become their king and to establish a dynasty of succession in his family. In other words, they were saying, look, you, you led us to this great victory. Be our king and your family after you rule over us. We'll see more about that in just a minute. After seeing what God did, to immediately ask for a king, first of all, makes no sense. If they needed it, God would raise up a judge or judges any time from among their ranks. A king was totally unnecessary. They didn't need a king to defeat Midian. Why would they need a king after the victory? It's important that we be content with the methods and ministries that God has established in the church and for our growth as Christians. We don't need to borrow any of the world's methods or ideas. We don't even need to be like other churches, doing what all the other churches are doing. Now, that's not a criticism of other churches. I think there are other good churches in our community. Any church that is teaching the word of God in a consistent way, uh, filled with born-again believers, that's a good church. But you could visit all the churches in our community, and some of them you would like, some of them you wouldn't like. doesn't mean they're wrong or right. It's just your personality uh, isn't in sync with that. So there's no problem that there's a bunch of different churches as long as we're on the same page, and that page is the Bible. However, having said that, we don't all have to do the same thing. And a lot of times you'll find in, in Christian circles, people come and say, oh, it, we're doing this. Is your church doing that? These five churches are all doing this. And usually it's from uh, somebody publishes a book and gets into the Christian bookstore. Christians like it. They start reading it. becomes super popular. And so the publisher comes back to the author and says, hey, you need to follow this up with a study guide. We need to get this into churches. We need to do a video series. We can really capitalize on this. Now, I'm not even saying that's all bad, even though it's financially motivated sometimes. Uh, but why do we all have to do the same thing at the same time when God has called us into different ministries? And so that's all I'm saying. Don't borrow from the world and don't do what everybody else is doing. Now, way back in the book of Deuteronomy, God predicted that Israel would demand a king. At, after the time of the judges, the people pressured Samuel, their prophet, to appoint a king. 
It was wrong of them. God told Samuel, this is a quote, it is not you they have rejected, they have rejected me as their king. So whether they realize it or not, when the men of Israel asked for a king, a man to be a king over them, they were rejecting God being their king. Later, Samuel would say to the men of Israel, you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. You're thinking, well, King David and all this stuff, isn't that good? God is able to work with evil things. He did never intend for there to be a kingship in Israel, but when they asked for it, he gave it to them and he overcame their sin and turned it into something beautiful. The grace of God is a tremendous thing. In another place, we're told that their motive for wanting a king was to be like the other nations. God had set them apart and he would rule over them himself. They felt odd and weird in the world and wanted to be more mainstream. If there was a United Nations at that time and, and during a break, the other nations would come up and say, hey, uh, you guys from Israel, uh, who's your king? Well, we, we don't have a king. And they'd be embarrassed. They'd, they'd shirk back because they were a nation without a king when all the other nations had kings. There's always a tremendous pressure for you as a Christian to conform to the ideas and the practices and the morals of the world. If you're raising kids, you feel this acutely every day because your kids aren't doing or saying what all the other kids are doing and saying. Your kids want to fit in. And so they put pressure on you to relax your standards. Mom, Dad, all the other kids are going to this movie. They're going to this event. They're doing this on the internet. They're doing this and that. Well, how come we can't do that? How come we don't do that? And there's a pressure. And as your kids get older, it only gets worse. I'm sorry, I had to tell you that. <laughs> but you know what? If you're a Christian, that should be happening in your house. Because you do, you have raised the bar. We have a higher standard than the world. I hope. Look at the world. You don't want to be like the world. Believe me. The world should want to be like you. And so there's that pressure. It's not just your kids who want to fit in. You and I want to fit in. Everywhere we live and work and play, there are opportunities to conform or compromise or to communicate something greater. And there are opportunities to confess that Jesus is first and because he is, you're not interested in certain things. Things that are inherently sinful, of course, or other things that wouldn't help your Christian walk. It isn't, you know, the Christian has the, uh, the reputation for being the guy that shrinks back and says, well, I, I would love to do what you're doing, but God won't let me. Have fun while I just sit here sour. And the idea is that I don't need to do that. What, that's, a, that's a vice. That's an addiction. That's, that's something that's going to pull me way away from where I want to be, you know, in terms of my life having meaning and purpose. You should want to be like me. If nobody wants to be like you, then you're not like Jesus. And I say that to myself as well. I'm not sure anybody wants to be like me. I don't want to be like me sometimes. But that's the idea. That's the goal. People should want to be like you rather than you be like them because you know someone who's amazing and who fills you with his spirit and who walks with you and talks with you and gives your life dimension and direction. So while we might not clamor for a king, we sometimes shrink away from our king because we don't want to be identified with him because we will stand out from a crowd. Now, the men of Israel thought Gideon was qualified because they say he had delivered them from the hand of Midian. Well, he had done no such thing. 
God had made it clear at each step it was he who delivered Israel using Gideon and as few men as possible. And he did it precisely so he and not a man or other men would get the glory. Nevertheless, God's glory was given to Gideon. I've suggested from the very beginning of our talks about Gideon that he was the least and the last person you and I would have suspected God would use. And he did it on purpose so that everybody would stand back and say, this is all God. Gideon, 300 guys, breaking pitchers and blowing trumpets, overwhelming an army of 135,000, killing their kings. This is none other than God. And yet having done all of that, fresh after the victory, the men of Israel say, Gideon, you did this. You did this. And we want you to be our king. And so very basic principle, you know this, give God the glory. Don't hold up a man or a woman who is merely a servant and give them any glory. We can encourage one another. We can be grateful for spiritual people in our lives. We can love them. We can show them respect. But in the end, it's Jesus who began a great work in us. He's the one that's bringing it to pass, not some other person. Israel had just been blessed with a supernatural victory over the Midianites and their alliance of evil. God had accomplished it in the most odd way possible. Instead of Israel wanting to be like other nations, the other nations ought to have wanted to be like Israel. They were missing a chance for evangelism. They, they should have gone out into these conquered nations and said, hey, this is your opportunity to convert to Judaism and to come in and be under our God who gave us this tremendous victory. But they didn't. We miss our chance for evangelism when we conform rather than try and tell others about the power to be transformed. And so verse 23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Does anybody still say, you go, girl? Is that a thing? <laughs> I hope not. But I was thinking about this. This would be a great place to say, you go, Gideon. I mean, it's the perfect thing. This is amazing. He immediately, unequivocally rejected the attempts to, throne, uh, to enthrone him. Sadly, we're going to see that it was merely lip service, but hold that thought for a minute. Before we see that, let's give him a little credit. It wasn't easy to say what Gideon said. We've shown that the men of Israel had a strong desire to appoint a king and a dynasty. It was always under the surface from generation to generation, and, and now it had you know, overflowed, and they were really putting pressure on him. This was a huge pressure, and it took a lot for Gideon to make this confession. If you're a Christian, just letting folks know, even in the most subtle ways, is a confession that he is first in your life. Sure, we can always say more, but anything we say or do that lifts up Jesus, it's wonderful and it's to be commended. Practice passive evangelism by having a Bible out in the open or displaying Bible verses, wearing clothing and jewelry that witness to others. Do everything you can to say, I'm a believer and Jesus is first in my life. Some who see it will want to know more. Others will try to get you to stop. Doesn't matter. Just give God the glory and keep growing in your public confession that he's your Lord. Now, in the rest of the verses, we're going to ask, do you choose as if Jesus is first? Various internet sources estimate an adult makes about 35,000 decisions every day. We make 220 decisions every day on food alone, according to the researchers at Cornell University. I actually make a lot more food decisions than this. Probably of my 35,000, 34,000 are about food. But anyway, 
and most of them are about Cuban sandwiches. But anyway, <laughs> whether 35,000 is a real number or not, it's clear that we all have choices, and of course, many of them have to do with our spiritual lives. Gideon made a great confession, and then he demolished it by his subsequent choices. He refused to be appointed king, but he immediately began living like their king. And so Gideon said to them in verse 24, I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. I thought they were Midianites. Well, they were, but there were other nations and tribes with them. And collectively, according to anthropologists, at that juncture in history, non-Jews could be called Ishmaelites because they were those that did not descend from Isaac. Piercings were a big part of Ishmaelite culture. You could go down to the local piercing shop and get your ears pierced, especially if you were a warrior. It was very manly. And they were especially into earrings. So what about the Israelites? Well, we know that they practiced one type of ear piercing. If a Jew who had sold himself into servitude to pay off his debt wanted to remain a servant after his time was ended, he'd be taken to the doorpost of his master's house. Using a hammer and an awl, the master would pierce the servant's ear, marking him as a permanent bondservant. There are other positive references in the Old Testament to Jewish women wearing earrings and nose rings, although these may not have been piercings. Abraham's servant, on a mission to find a wife for Isaac, immediately gives Rebecca a nose ring. So am I telling you all this? Go easy on the question of body piercings and tattoos. It's one of those hot buttons among Christians today. Ooh, tattoos. Ooh, body piercings. Leviticus 18. You're a sinner. Well, the Jews pierced themselves, even though it was in the law uh, and all and so. Go easy. Outward things don't defile us. Inward things do. I guess since I'm on the subject, I have to finish the Leviticus 18 thing. So when people say to us, uh, it says here, don't mark your body in Leviticus 18. A few verses earlier, it also says not to wear clothing that's made out of mixed material. And so what I like to do with people is ask them, excuse me, can I look at the tag on your shirt? <laughs> and that if, if, if it's not 100% something, then you need to burn that sucker right now because you're in violation of the Levitical law that says you can't wear mixed fabric. Oh, well, that's stupid. That's exactly right. <laughs> Point made. Anyway, Gideon wasn't into earrings as a fashion accessory, but as tribute. My wife just texted me and said it's about a million five is what this was worth, uh, this poundage. So a million dollars. Adjusting for inflation, it was like a billion dollars probably. But anyway, Gideon didn't want the earrings as a fashion accessory. It was tribute. In the latest Pirates of the Caribbean movie, when a young Jack Sparrow becomes captain, his crew file by one at a time, giving him various objects as tribute to suggest their loyalty. Besides making Gideon rich, it was a very public statement that he was the one responsible for their victory. He deserved the glory and the tribute for it. We can confess all we want that Jesus is first, but it is our choices that reveal who is truly first in our lives. Commentators like to make a comparison between Gideon and Abraham. Abraham once led 318 men from his household into battle against a coalition of kings who had, among other things, carried off his nephew Lot. After God gave Abraham the victory, he refused all spoil, saying, I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten. 
And so Gideon and Abraham, two men with solid confessions that the Lord was first. Abraham made choices that were consistent with that confession. Gideon made choices that were totally inconsistent with that confession. Verse 25, so they answered, we will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. There are times in the Bible when God allowed the Israelites to take spoils of victory. And there were times when he told them to not take anything. We can't say whether taking spoil was good or bad in this case, but there's no record of God permitting it or prohibiting it. But taking spoil from the enemy can be a snare. It can be detrimental to our spiritual life. It certainly was detrimental to Gideon's spiritual life. Verse 26, now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides crescent ornaments, pendants, purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around the camel's necks. And so when Gideon said, would you give me the earrings, he meant earrings and crescent ornaments and pendants and purple robes and chains. He wanted all of it. And the men of Israel were all too happy to oblige him. And so it sounds like he doesn't want very much. I'd just like a few earrings to, you know, as a remembrance of of what God did because I don't want to be king. And by the time you get down to it, he wants all of the spoil, all of the plunder for himself. Once you start taking spoil from the world, it's easier to justify more and more. You become kind of desensitized to the world and you don't notice what it's doing to you. We can apply this to our lifestyles. Individually, we have to do this. I can't do it for you and you can't do it for me. But we could ask of ourselves, for example, how many pendants are enough? Now, probably it's not pendants for you. It's something else. With me, let's say, how many coffee makers are enough? I really love, I love to make coffee more than I love to drink coffee. I quit counting last night at 45 in terms of different appliances and little crazy things that I have that make coffee. I have a a rare Black & Decker microwave espresso maker. It's a total failure. It makes the worst coffee you could ever have. And I almost burned myself to death trying to figure out how to use it one time because I got it at the thrift store and there were no instructions. And I thought, this must just come apart. Anyway, but uh, so are are 45 too many? Are 46? That's between me and the Lord. But we all have our own standards and we all have to figure out where we need to, you know, put a halt to different things. And it's not just material. I, I think you understand what I'm saying is that the world offers us spoil and we have to figure out where our spiritual life uh, is in terms of that. I can't choose for you. I can't judge your choices. My choices are a hobby. Yours are idolatry. I mean, that's, that's, always, that's, our, that's always the way it is. And you know that. People have all, oh, yeah, you've got two of these. I don't have any. Well, you've got 15 of those. Well, but that's a hobby, you know, and that kind. So you can only judge yourself unless something is obviously sinful. And so, but we do, we need to look at our lives and figure it out. In a wealthy culture like ours and where there's pressure to keep up with or to surpass the mythical Joneses, we need to take inventory of the spoil in our lives versus the spiritual. I was reading a a book a few months ago. It's by a young mega church pastor who's currently popular. He's a good guy and he's pastoring a good church. And the book he wrote is about the Lord showing him, in his case, that he needed to simplify his life materially 
to have less in order to accomplish more. So it sounds like a great goal. He was having difficulty doing it because our culture is kind of against that. It's, it's hard to, you know, to pare backwards when everything is moving forward. And so to help him, and he, this is the way he put it in the book, to help him, God sent Hurricane Katrina. And what I'm not minimizing any of the destruction or the human suffering in it, but in his case, it was a good thing because Hurricane Katrina took their house and all of their possessions, all they had was the clothes on their back and their children. And so they were starting from ground zero while he was writing a book about how to get rid of material things and how to live for Jesus, right? But wait, I'm not done. This is the best part. The best part. It's actually the worst part, but it's that he admits that within a few months after getting their insurance settlement, settlement, they had more stuff than they had before because they just kept refurbishing and refurbishing and then they realized, oh no, now we have to start over again trying to get rid of stuff. And that's the point at which I quit reading the book. I mean, God's going to do something tremendous in your life and make you an example. Don't blow it immediately. Uh, but that's the idea. You know, it, we should all, you know, not that God's going to send a hurricane, probably not in Hanford, uh, or a flood or a fire or anything like that. And, and that doesn't need to happen. But all of us need to take inventory from time to time about whether we're living large or whether we want to live larger lives for God. Environmentalists talk about your carbon footprint. Maybe we should talk about our carnal footprint. A believer can sadly be carnal, which means giving into the flesh or uh, you're saved, but you live as if you were dominated by your fleshly desires. At one point in the book of uh, Corinthians, Paul tells the believers that they're indistinguishable from non-believers. They're saved, but they live just like non-believers, and so they have a big carnal footprint, and we need to eradicate that in our lives. Verse 27, then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. The ephod, the original ephod, was a vest that was worn by Israel's high priest. It had on it 12 precious stones, one to represent each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Scholars say it also had pockets or compartments within which were the mysterious Urim and Thummim. According to one source, they were, and I quote, gemstones that were carried by the high priest of Israel on the ephod priestly garment. They were used by the high priest to determine God's will in some situations. Some proposed that God would cause the Urim and Thummim to light up in varying patterns to reveal his decision. I'm sorry, I can't help but think of close encounters whenever I read that. It's kind of weird, right? I wonder if Steven Spielberg got that from the Urim and Thummim. But, so no one really knows how the high priest made his decision, whether they glowed or whether one just said yes and the other no, and it was a random thing. But you know, God revealed his will. It seems weird, but back in the Old Testament, he would reveal his will by the casting of lots and things like that, and uh, they trusted that. Even into the New Testament, when they picked the, uh, the apostle to replace Judas, they cast lots. And um, so interesting stuff. Anyway, um, I've totally lost my place because I'm wondering if what I just said is even true. Anyway, not only was Gideon acting like a king, he was in some sense acting like a priest or at least someone with authority in discovering the will of God. Whatever his intention, the Israelites treated it like an idol. 
and they look to it and not to the prescribed worship of the Lord. It's an interesting idol in that it resembled something that the Lord had given them. It wasn't just a little carving of one of those weird gods with the face that looks like this. It, it, was, it was an ephod like the high priest's ephod. But that tells us that we're able to have outward trappings of religion that have nothing to do with our heart. And, and so just because it looks spiritual doesn't mean it is spiritual. Uh, even the disciplines of our Christian life can be shallow, empty rituals. I don't want to discourage anybody ever from reading the Bible or praying, but your Bible reading and praying can become a ritual. It can just be, you know, uh, hey, I got that done, I checked that off, uh, especially on your app, you know, that keeps yelling at you because you didn't do your reading and you want to make sure you get all the check marks and that kind of thing. The Lord wants a heart relationship, obviously we all know that. And so it's not a matter of just getting things done, it's a matter of spending time with the Lord. Sometimes I think you should just spend all year in Genesis 1-1, just meditating on that, you know? I mean, it's great to read through the whole Bible in a year or five years or whatever plan you're on, but if God wants you to slow down and talk to you, then let him do it. Verse 28, thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted their heads no more, and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. God is good. Even in the face of Gideon's blatant disregard for putting God first, and even as Israel was committing spiritual adultery with the ephod, God honored his word and gave them peace during Gideon's lifetime. God's graciousness should not be confused with his blessing. You can be healthy and wealthy, but not be anywhere near the will of God. You can be sick and afflicted and in a trial and be totally in the will of God. And this is something we've, we go over all the time, but it's important because our default position in life is to look at a person who's being blessed outwardly and believe that they are doing things right and that God is blessing them because they're doing things right. And our first thought when we're sick or when we get that diagnosis and something's wrong is that we're in sin and God is disciplining us. And, and we need to just forget about that and just deal with the, the will of God and the word of God. And, and, you know, if, if I'm healthy and I'm wealthy, first of all, am I even a Christian? Because people in the world who aren't saved are healthy and wealthy as well. Uh, don't think of your lack of trials as God's blessing in your life. In fact, as you get deeper into the word, your lack of trials should concern you because you're not going to grow as much as you can unless you're having trial after trial that requires patient waiting during suffering. And so physical or material blessings are not always in sync with your spiritual life. Then Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Jeroboam was the name, of the, men, excuse me, the name that the men of Israel gave Gideon when he destroyed the altar of Baal and its idol way back in uh, his father's house before this all started. It was his superhero name, proclaiming that Baal could not contend with Gideon. He had defeated Baal. The DC movie franchise of superheroes calls them metahumans. As Jeroboam, he was thought of as some kind of a metahuman. He chose to live like a king and like a priest and like a larger-than-life hero. And so while Gideon was saying, oh, no, no, I, I can't be your king. None of my children are going to be your king either. However, I'm going to act like your king. I'm going to act like your priest, and I'm a superhero. So just make sure you keep me up on that pedestal. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring. He had many wives. 
Gideon was in demand among the ladies, metahuman as he was. His many wives were certainly not in God's will, didn't need an ephod to determine that. And so the idea you get here is that he had this ephod, which invited the men of Israel to come to him so that he could determine God's will for their lives. When you could look at his life just from his many wives and say to him, from the word of God, you are totally out of God's will. Why would I want to discern God's will from somebody who's not in God's will? This is why I tell people, before you read a book, Christian book, non-Christian book, before you go to counseling, before anything like that happens, find out about the person who wrote the book or who you're gonna be talking to because you can know what they're gonna say based on what they believe. And, and uh, especially if you're, a lot of times we get, it doesn't offend us here at the church, people call and they say, we need a recommendation for professional marriage counseling, which means pastoral marriage counseling is something that we don't think will help us. We need professional counseling. Do you know anything about these counselors? Do you know if they've been married multiple times? Maybe instead of marriage counseling, you're actually getting divorce counseling. I mean, you, you should want somebody whose life is a little bit together to counsel you, don't you think? I can say this honestly because before I became a Christian, I graduated with degrees in philosophy and psychology. It's on my wall stained because I left it in a drawer one time and something spilled on it. But anyway... I've got these degrees, and I wanted to go on and, and get into a counseling program to help people. I wanted to help them in their marriage and with their addictions and with their problems. At a time when I hated my wife and I wanted my marriage to end, and I was smoking pot and getting drunk every night, and I had so many problems, but I was going to help you. And so that's the kind of person you get when you go to some counseling. It's like, if you don't, you know, you check it out. Uh, it sounds rude, right? But you, I, before, I, before you talk to me, I want to talk to you. Are you married? How long have you been married? Divorced? You know, the whole thing. They'll probably kick you out of their office. But, you know, why go, to, why go to Gideon for advice on the will of God when he's so outside the will of God, it's not even funny? Thus the children of Israel, uh, oh, excuse me. Oh, and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, whose name he called Abimelech, verse 31. Gideon needed a girl in Shechem as well. As a concubine, any children born to her had no legal right to any inheritance. Nevertheless, Gideon named him Abimelech, which, get this, Abimelech means my dad is king. That's, that's what the words mean, Abimelech, my father is king. It's kind of a dynastic name. It's like Pharaoh. So if you're Abimelech, my dad is king, and that means you're part of this dynasty. I'll give you a sneak peek into chapter nine. Abimelech is going to murder 69 of Gideon's 70 sons to try and take over the kingdom. Verse 32, now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father in Ophrah of the Abizrites. And so it was as soon as Gideon was dead that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Berith their god. No one's quite sure what or who Baal Berith was these people, they made up gods and ways to worship them to suit their lusts. The point is, God withheld discipline until Gideon was dead for the sake of his word. Thus, verse 34, the children of Israel did not remember the Lord, their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. God went to crazy lengths to show it was him who had delivered them for their own good and for his deserved glory. They honored Gideon and continued in idolatry. I like the phrasing, remember the Lord. We need to do it more. 
If you got saved later in life, do you often remember the Lord, how he saved you, what he saved you from? Is it not an incredible thing to be delivered from sin, to be safe from death and hell, to know mankind's future and to know your own future as a person who will either be raised from the dead or raptured to live in glory for eternity? I mean, those are great things to remember, should be remembered all the time. Verse 35, they did not show kindness to the household of Jeroboam, Gideon, in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. The relationship between Gideon and Israel wasn't genuine. It was tenuous and shallow. You know, in the Lord, we can have deep, genuine relationships because we have within us his Holy Spirit. He unites us. He sheds his love in our hearts so that we love one another. Gideon died. He was buried. He did not end well. Do you remember the peace ads? What do you want on your tombstone? Usually somebody was being executed. They're kind of dark for pizza, but somebody was about to be executed and they would, the executioner would say, what do you want on your tombstone? And the accused would say, pepperoni and onion. And then they would bring him a tombstone pizza. In Gideon's case, it wasn't pepperoni and onion. It was earrings and pendants and idolatry and polygamy that led to fratricide. Uh, I'm not saying those were on his tombstone or even had a tombstone, but you could have engraved that on his tombstone. Here lies Gideon with his earrings and pendants and idolatry and polygamy and fratricide. If it weren't for him being mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 as a card-carrying member of God's hall of faith, I would doubt Gideon was even saved. Somebody is going to come up and say, You're, Gideon, you need to show me your card. What do you mean? I, I want to see your Hall of Faith card from Hebrews 11 because I don't believe you're really saved. I, how can you be in heaven? He's saved, but what a terrible legacy. By nature of my profession, I'm going to say I've been to more funerals than most of you. If you've been to more funerals than me, you have a weird obsession with funerals. <laughs> to me, it's an occupational thing. And so I've been to a lot of funerals over the 30 years. I've officiated at a bunch of them. And that means I've heard a lot of eulogies. The worldly things some people are remembered for can be so terribly sad considering that they are now passed into eternity. I remember one individual. For all practical purposes, as far as we know, this person never accepted the Lord in his life right up through the end. I always hold out hope, not a false hope, but I don't know what happens you know, in the heart. Uh, I never get up and say, we know this person is you know, unsaved and in hell. We know that the unsaved go to hell, uh, ultimately. But, but for all practical purposes, not a Christian. And somebody started the eulogies with the statement that this person had the most well-manicured lawn and yard in the neighborhood. And then every other person who came up augmented that and added to it about what an amazing yard this person had and how they would be out, you know, like each blade of grass. I mean, it built and built and built. And with each eulogy, I got sadder and sadder. I mean, it just tears your heart away to think that you could live your entire life and miss salvation and not go to heaven and be remembered for your lawn and that people would think that was a great thing. And I understand they're grasping at straws. They're, they're trying to put it into perspective, which hopefully we do when we share the gospel. But 
Nobody wants that kind of a legacy. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, that's your legacy. You've got a great lawn. In your case, it might be something else, but that's essentially it. You don't want that on your tombstone. You want something like the fact that you were a servant of God and that you ministered to people in the power of the Holy Spirit, that you knew the Lord and he was first in your life. So what do you want on your tombstone? It's up to you by your choices to carve out a legacy. Let it be spiritual. Remember the Lord and be remembered as his servant.